Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. It's Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, today we're going to uh, hear a speech from uh, Sally McManus. Now, of course, we are part of the uh, 12 Days of Action going uh, and uh, people are being called in Melbourne to uh, turn up to the May the 9th rally, which will be held on the corner of uh, Victoria and Ligon, which is uh, outside the Victorian Trades Hall uh, building. Uh, It starts at 10 and uh, workers, uh, supporters and uh, union members are all hopefully going to be standing there calling for the Change the Rules. And uh, it's a terribly important campaign because we're on the brink of uh, a, a quiet disaster and a loud disaster for some people that uh, uh, obviously the federal police and uh, many of their masters, the private enterprise sector, don't seem to be appreciating. So uh, loud voices are required. Uh, And uh, the first part of uh, what I'm going to play you today is actually what happened at a recent uh, Victorian Trades Hall dinner where Sally McManus talks. It's just a little bit of a thing that happened just to introduce uh, a a bigger speech that she did at a thing called uh, Put Together by Per Capita. Per Capita do speeches, uh, get uh, movers and shakers to come and have a talk to people and Sally was there. And some people have said that uh, uh, Change the Rules may be a bit thin on the ground in terms of uh, hard facts, but uh, she outlines in this speech some of the key aspects of uh, the changes that she believes and the ACTU believes needs to happen in order to right the balance between uh, the different classes in this country. So I thought it was worth uh, sharing. Uh, but first up, let's uh, hear a little levity in a sense. Fantastic it was on Tuesday to be on the stage and stand in front of 2,000 delegates from Victoria. It was absolutely awesome. It was inspiring. You know what? Any campaign takes leadership. I'll tell you the leadership that's shown. Number one, the workers at ESSA. Number one, the workers at ESSA. The sacrifice of 303 days, those guys could go back to work tomorrow if they wanted to, except a 40% pay cut, except the way labour hire, sham contracting, the whole EBA broken system works and just accept that pay cut. But 
they didn't. And they've stood up all of that time. That is leadership. And leadership is also happening here in Victoria. This was the very first part of the action that's happening around the country. And for it to start off with 2,000 delegates in the way it did, I tell you what, it lit up all over the country. And over the next month, we're going to see every single city, every single capital city, all of the regional towns, all have their action as well. All inspired by what you started, it's going to end with you guys. It's going to end on 9th of May, and it's going to be huge. I know it's going to be huge. It's going to inspire the rest of the country, and that is leadership. Anyway, I am going to do something a bit brave, and I need a couple of people to help me. So Matt and Mary are going to come and help me. This is something that never done by an ACTU secretary before. After tonight, maybe it will be done again. We'll see. Okay. I'm going to need all your attention. Not just your attention, I'm going to need your participation. Because we're a collective movement, we're only as strong as all of us together. So, if this speech works out, or a version of it, I'm going to take it around the country, all of the, uh, all of the events. And so I reckon it's pretty safe to try it here um, with Victorians, because you'll be very kind to me, I'm sure, if it's, if it's no good. Um, I grew up with the dead Kennedys, don't tell the Australian that, but I did. <laughs> This is sort of Dead Kennedys, it's sort of opera, it's sort of um, our history, but actually it's inspired by the delegates meeting and it's also inspired by Jets winning Batman because I, I, was, I was watching that on TV, the whole country was watching that on TV and I watched that whole audience break out into solidarity forever. So, you ready guys? So guys... You're going to know the bit that you've got to get involved in. You're going to know it, okay? I'm not going to have to give you a cue. So you're going to have to join in when it's your turn. You ready? We've had enough of systematic wage theft from 7-Eleven to celebrity chefs. Pay cuts, pay rises cease with CEO bonuses and profits increase. Bargaining is broken and the deck is stacked. Bosses cancel agreements and manipulate the facts. Insecure work and casualisation. Jobs without rights are the scourge of our nation. Fake contracts, fake casuals and fake ABNs. No job security. Will their greed never end? Unfair commissions. Equal pay denied. They want us to run. They want us to hide. Is there anything left for us to do but organise and fight for the union? Makes
system and putting fairness back into the Fair Work Commission. Our industrial system is seriously out of balance. Working people don't have strong enough and easily enforceable rights. One of the key problems is that we don't have an, an effective independent umpire. The independent workplace umpire has been weakened. It no longer has the ability to listen to workers and to resolve workplace problems. It's lost the power to arbitrate. The minimum wage can't rise to deal with poverty. Pay disputes go on and on, they can't be resolved. Improvements in award conditions to deal with insecure work and DV leave can't be awarded. This is because the ability of the Industrial Commission to arbitrate, to make decisions after listening to both sides, has been taken away. Disputes about pay, disputes about conditions of employment, disputes about unfair treatment can no longer be resolved quickly and easily by the independent industrial umpire. We still have an industrial commission, but it can't do much. It has some powers to assist workers who've been unfairly dismissed or been bullied. It has powers to review awards. It does this by applying rules set by parliament. It has been reviewing awards for so long now, it seems only, no, only to know how to take things away from workers. Think how it took away low paid workers' penalty rates, and it did this under an act that requires it to place business before workers. The Commission doesn't apply a merits test anymore. It applies a list such as the modern award objectives. The test of fairness and reasonableness has gone. In the domestic and family violence leave case the ACTU ran last year, the Commission found the, merit had cl the claim had merit. In its decision, the Commission made these findings. The ACTU's submissions and evidence established family and domestic violence is a workplace issue which requires a workplace response. Family and domestic violence is a significant problem and has significant impacts on those who experience it and their families. Family and domestic violence has a significant economic impacts both for the individual and the general community. Whilst men can experience family and domestic violence, it's a gendered phenomena and disproportionately affects women. The impact on women who experience family and domestic violence is different to the impact on employees who experience other forms of violence. Family violence is not simply a private or an individual issue, it is a systematic one arising from wider social and economic and cultural factors. Effective measures to address family violence need to operate both in the private and in the public spheres. 
the evidence established that the circumstances faced by women who experience family and domestic violence require a special response. That's what the Fair Work Commission said. The Commission also accepted the ACTU evidence that domestic and other forms of violence have real and tangible impacts on employees and employers in the workplace. Employers have understood the significance of the issue and voluntarily implemented domestic violence leave provisions in response. Violence against women and the national economy cost $21.7 billion per year, including the cost of delivering health services, the loss of productivity and an increased demand on the criminal justice system. There are unquantifiable psychological impacts that family and domestic violence has on victims. The process in dealing with family and domestic violence are time-consuming, and the current leave provisions for victims of family and domestic violence are inadequate. Clearly, the Commission was of a view that the case for paid domestic violence was compelling. I've no doubt if the test was whether the claim was for fair and reasonable, the Commission would have awarded our claim. But the test has little to do with fairness. The Commission was then required to apply the modern award objectives. In doing so, it found that while there was a compelling case for paid domestic violence leave, it was not necessary to meet the modern award objective. Instead, only five days unpaid leave could be granted. That's not enough. It will be of limited assistance to women and children who need to flee a violent home, doesn't provide any financial support at all, it fails to recognise the time it takes to find a place, to deal with trauma, to care for children, to deal with the authorities and to be safe. I don't want to rerun the case, I just want to point out the claim was defeated not because it was without merits but because it didn't fit within the constraints of a limited test about what should and shouldn't be in awards. Of course we should have paid domestic violence leave but the rules won't let us. It wasn't always like this. We used to have the best system of conciliation and arbitration in the world. You could run a test case for the eight-hour day, for paid annual leave, paid sick leave, for superannuation, retrenchment pay, all of those things that unions have campaigned for and won over the years. We could run those cases because there was access to an independent umpire which could grant claims on merit and improve conditions as circumstances allowed. Under that system, we would have had paid domestic violence leave. When employers complained about the industrial system 20 years ago, they said it was all too complicated. There were state commissions and a federal commission. The federal commission was constrained by the use of the conciliation and arbitration power in the constitution. This made things complicated. Paper logs involving ambit, dispute findings, roping in, respondents lists, and there were thousands of awards. And in addition, there were state systems with different awards, often overlapping, operating as common rule awards. It was all a bit much. And you know something? It was complicated. One thing the Industrial Commission has done over the last 20 years is to spend a lot of time and resources simplifying, rationalising and modernising our award system. As the law changed, the Commission was told to tidy up awards. And it did so. We now have 122 awards when there used to be around 3,000 federal awards and many thousand state awards which are now effectively defunct. Recent demands by extremist employer groups to abolish the remaining awards are dangerous. For most working people, awards underpin their rights at work and their pay. We need our award system. It should form the basis of improving rights for workers. Reducing the number of awards might have made sense 
but stripping back of award conditions did not. We need to use the new streamlined award system to ensure a strong and effective foundation for everyone. Things such as penalty rates should be restored. Our awards should reflect industry standards. They should not be a mere safety net. After all, 2.3 million workers rely on them. And, and to do that, we need an independent umpire which has the power to consider what is fair and reasonable. The Commission should be able to determine cases on their merits and not be constrained by the current rules. The work choices uh, regime, Endgame, was about abolishing awards. It was also about taking fairness out of the system. One of the key ways it achieved that was to reduce the powers of the industrial umpire, in particular to take away the power of arbitration. The Industrial Commission used, used to be a strong umpire. Work choices relegated relegated it to be an occasional linesman. I should say lines person, really, shouldn't I? <laughs> it now makes a few calls here and there, but it's a long way from the main game. We used to have an independent umpire that could resolve disputes. If you were being underpaid, you could go to the Commission and get it sorted. You could get it sorted quickly, easily, and at no cost. I don't think most people fully appreciate that the independent umpire isn't there anymore. That's a big part of the powerlessness that working people now feel in the workplace. And it's not just about making awards. We need a tough cop back to deal with wage theft. Disputes about pay have to be taken to courts. The Commission can't help. But court processes take a long time. They're technical. They're costly. Ordinary working people can't take their employer to court. They can't afford to. If they do, they often face victimisation and risk their job. If they are victimised, they have to go to court again, doubling up on cost and time and complexity. It has become almost impossible to resolve workplace disputes through this system. Disputes over the correct payment of wages should be dealt with quickly and informally. This is in everyone's interest. Instead, a claim to be paid correctly has to go to court. Going to court means lawyers. You need them to prepare the paperwork, which is complex and takes time. You need them to go to a directions hearing and prepare, prepare pleadings, draft affidavits and written submissions. You need them in court to present your case, to argue about evidence and conduct cross-examination. This all takes time, it costs money. A simple underpayment can take 18 months to resolve. If you're lucky, and the cost, and cost tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees. No wonder there is so much wage theft. Employers know the system is stacked in their favour. A better way to deal with this is to have an industrial commission that can enforce the rights workers already have. A body that will deal with it quickly, talk to the parties, conciliate and, if necessary, arbitrate. This is what the industrial commissions once did. Even through the complexities of the old system, there was room for industrial justice. But not anymore. Our rules are broken. The lawyers in this room will be aware that over the last 20 years in other parts of our legal system, courts have embraced alternative dispute resolution to resolve otherwise lengthy, complex and costly legal disputes. Things like commercial arbitration, court-ordered mediation, administrative law tribunals, tenancy tribunals, family court mediators and consumer complaint, complaint tribunals are accepted ways of resolving legal disputes. At the same time, the Industrial Commission's power to provide quick, simple, accessible justice has disappeared. The Workplace Ombudsman has been given a role as a cop on the beat. 
It has a number of roles. It's supposed to educate about and promote harmonious workplace relations. It provides information about workplace rights. It conducts research about workplace issues. It's meant to police non-compliance. But it's under-resourced and it's conflicted. It has 200 inspectors to deal with a workforce of 12 million workers. Its recent record includes meddling in industrial disputes and competing with other institutions such as the Industrial Commission. It prosecutes unions, it prosecutes employers. It sends investigators to sit at the back of Industrial Commission hearings to gather intel so it can do so. At the moment, it's investigating both the union and the employer involved in the Oki North dispute in Queensland. The parties have resolved that dispute. The workers have been locked out for 237 days. It was a bitter dispute, but it's now resolved. Except that the Fair Work Ombudsman wants to pour over it to see if it can prosecute anyone. That dispute should have been resolved by the Industrial Commission much, much sooner. The Ombudsman seems to think it now has a role to reignite the dispute in the courts. Instead of quick, informal dispute resolution, our rules have created a complex, legalistic system that results in disputes going on and on. We need a one-stop shop for the resolution of workplace disputes. Our institutions shouldn't be competing with one another to deal with the disputes. Disputes should not be taken to courts. They should be resolved by the Industrial Commission with a strong arbitration power. Our current rules allow for conciliation, but not for arbitration. But the key to resolving disputes informally and quickly is the threat of compulsory arbitration. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're listening to Sally McManus outlining some of the things that she believes needs to be put in place in order to change the rules. So let's hear what she's got to say. For over 100 years, workers have had access to compulsory conciliation and, when necessary, arbitration. When the Commission had the authority to move quickly to arbitration if conciliation failed, all parties had an incentive to agree to a reasonable compromise in conciliation. Employers and employees understand the best outcome is an agreed outcome, and often the possibility of the Commission deciding the matter is what is needed to help resolve disputes and reach agreements. Awards and agreements have dispute procedures, but they're not required to include arbitration. If you have a grievance at work, you have to take it to your manager, and then more senior managers, and then you might be able to take it to the Industrial Commission, but the Industrial Commission can't resolve the dispute by arbitration unless the boss agrees. And the boss seldom agrees. Why would they? In practice, it means workers find it very difficult to enforce the rights they already have. The simplest things, like whether you can change your roster that stopped you from picking up your kids was fair, can't be resolved. You can complain if you get to the Commission, and even if the Commissioner agrees with you, nothing can be done about it. It shouldn't be like this. Workers should have somewhere to go if they are being treated unfairly. The Commission has a role in fixing wages through the annual wage review. Each financial year, the Fair Work Commission's expert panel conducts an annual wage review and issues a decision in the National Minimum Wage Order, which applies to employees not covered by an award or an agreement. The minimum wage can only be varied if the Fair Work Commission is satisfied the variation is justified by work value reasons. There are now 2.3 million workers who are dependent on the annual wage review for an increase to their wages. 
2.3 million workers currently paid the lowest that the law permits. The process of the annual wage review involves an expert panel receiving submissions from organisations and individuals. This panel is made up of the President of the Commission, three full-time members of the Commission, three part-time members who are individuals with experience in workplace relations, economics, social policy, business, industry or commerce. Unlike the former national wage cases, there is no application before the minimum wage panel to determine. There are no parties, nor, are there any, nor is there any dispute to resolve. Instead, there is a process of public inquiry where decisions are made in an administrative way rather than by arbitration. In May 2016, there were 2.3 million employees relied on the minimum wage review to get a pay rise. That's about 23% of all employees. Around 36% of employees were paid according to a collective agreement and 37.3% were paid according to an individual arrangement, which of course is still underpinned by the, by the award wages. The proportion of employees paid according to the minimum wage has risen in recent years after a fall during the recent decade. Based on the ABS employee earnings and hours data in 2000, around 23% of employees were award reliant which decreased during the 2000s to a low of 15% in 2010. Award reliance arose to 18.8% of employees in May 2014 and 23% in, in um, May this year. The proportion of collective agreements fell 5% over the same period. In real terms, this means there are an extra 450,000 workers dependent on the national wage at at May 2016 compared to May 2014, and a corresponding fall of 375,000 workers on collective agreements over the same period. More recent figures suggest this trend is continuing. In the National Wage Review, the expert panel acknowledged that it was constrained by the minimum wage objective. In its 2017 decision, the panel acknowledged that the national minimum wage would not lift all full-time workers out of poverty particularly those households with dependent children and single wage earners. An arbitrated minimum wage that was decided on the basis of what is fair and reasonable would lift workers out of poverty. That has been the underpinning principle of our wage system for over 100 years. The rules on minimum wages are broken, we need to change them. The other significant area for the fixing of wages is enterprise bargaining. Many changes are needed to our bargaining system, but one of them is providing arbitration to ensure fairness. Enterprise bargaining has left most disputes about pay to be finally determined by the parties. This has seen the trading away of conditions, the introduction of flexibility and improvements in productivity. Pay has generally followed. However, if the boss says no to a pay rise in bargaining, then you can't go to the commission and ask for assistance and it appears the boss is increasingly saying no. The trends in federal enterprise bargaining um, published, um, released by the Department of Jobs and Small Business in September last year recorded a steady decline in the, in the average annualised wage increase in enterprise agreements from 3.5% in September 2014 down to 2.9% in September 2017. In enterprise bargaining, the Commission has various roles. It can make things called scope orders, the majority support determinations, it can make good faith bargaining orders, it can make protected action ballots, it can make orders that stop industrial action, but it can't deal with the subject matter of bargaining. 
It can't stop the boss from refusing to give no pay rise at all. In fact, it is required to help the boss in bargaining by terminating earlier agreements so that hard work won terms and conditions disappear. This isn't fair. The independent umpire should be there to knock heads together. It should be there to help parties reach agreement. In the past, we had an arbitration system with well-established and maintained standards of fairness. Commissioners referred to these when they acted as arbitrators or as conciliators. The public nature of arbitrated standards allowed them to be applied in conciliation as well as in arbitration. There was overlap between the process of conciliation and arbitration. But fairness has disappeared. The Commission just applies checklists formulated by Parliament in a one-size-fits-all manner. It doesn't have the flexibility to do what is fair. When the Tribunal had authority to move quickly to arbitration if conciliation failed, parties had every incentive to agree to a reasonable compromise. That incentive has gone. And the Commission should have broad powers to arbitrate. It should have strong powers to compel parties to attend conferences and hearings. Arbitration is a key as it focuses the mind. The law needs to have broad coverage so the Commission can deal with all aspects of a dispute. If there is a dispute over pay at 7-Eleven, then the Commission should be empowered to summons not just the store owner but the franchisor. If there is a dispute over entitlements on a building site, then where appropriate, the Commission should be able to make orders not just against the subcontractor but also about the head, against the head builder. The Commission, as a public body, must act fairly and transparently. It will be open to public scrutiny and will be required to afford procedural fairness. In two examples, the current laws are complex. The Fair Work Ombudsman took years to deal with 7-Eleven, no doubt because of the complexity of the arrangements. Decisions of the Ombudsman were not transparent and not subject to scrutiny. In the second example, the ABCC is more interested in chasing the CFMEU that in, that, than ensuring construction workers get paid. It's not interested in dealing with security of payment issues at all. In bargaining disputes, the Commission should be able to arbitrate outcomes when parties cannot reach agreement. The, part, the Department of Home Affairs example shows how difficult it is to gain arbitration and how complex arbitrations have become. 14,000 workers have been waiting almost five years for a pay rise. The first three and a half years, the government said they could only have a 2% increase and that would be funded from trading off other conditions such as allowances. There were three votes of workers, with 80 to 90% of workers rejecting the offers. There was industrial action that the government said was a threat to national security. That led to an 18-month arbitration. The Commission has to apply a list of criteria. Only one of those is the merits of the case. The government said they agreed to nothing, so every term and condition had, had to be arbitrated. That arbitration has taken 18 months and the 14,000 workers are still waiting five years after the last pay rise for an outcome. This sort of dispute should not happen. There are, of course, other examples. The picket at Exxon at the Longford plant, which is protesting about maintenance workers being replaced by cheaper labour, has gone on for almost a year. There should be the capacity for the Industrial Commission to step in and resolve the dispute. If arbitration is necessary, it should be available. Other high-profile disputes, such as the street dispute, the CUB dispute, 
The Cube dispute on Web Dock and Oki North dispute would all have benefited from the involvement in the, of the Industrial Commission with meaningful powers of arbitration. If we had arbitration powers in, in the Commission, Qantas would never have gotten away with shutting its airline in 2011. In a changing economy, we are better served by institutions that are flexible and responsive. The current rules make our industrial system cumbersome and inefficient. It's not fit for purpose. We cannot resolve workplace disputes. It's not empowered to ensure fairness is afforded at work. This needs to change. Our independent umpire should have teeth. It should be able to arbitrate. We need to change the rules to put fairness back into the Fair Work Commission. Join the May Day March this Sunday at 1pm from Victorian Trades Hall, Connor Ligon and Victoria Streets. Defend workers' rights and demand the right to strike. Bring your family and friends and show your support for decent pay and working conditions and for a society that meets the needs of the people. May Day March and Family Day, including stalls and activities. This Sunday, 1pm, Victorian Trades Hall in Carlton. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. You definitely are, and it's Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and that was Sally McManus talking at the per capita speak, uh, round of um, speeches that they have. Uh, the um, interesting thing is that uh, that's key, obviously, to what the uh, changes of the rules required. That's uh, May Day tomorrow, uh, celebrations outside... Uh, Trades Hall, but uh, the big day really is uh, May the 9th, that's Wednesday, 10 o'clock outside the same location uh, for the Change the Rules rally. In the studio we've got, we're moving on to the, uh, uh, what's got been started on uh, Friday actually, May May the 3rd, uh, the uh, Human Rights Arts and Film Festival started, uh, but in the studio we've got some people who have put on a show down at the Coonahan Gallery. Uh, First up uh, we've got the uh, gallery curator Victor Grisk. Victor, hello, how are you? Good morning Annie, I'm good, how are you? Good, and the others are the artists Paul Handley. Hi Annie. And Bryce Wilson. Hey Annie, thank you for having me. Yeah, well first we'll start with Victor, you can tell us why uh, the Coonahan Gallery is involved in this festival. Uh, well, um, as many people would know, uh, our namesake Noel Coonahan was a uh, not just an artist, but uh, uh, an activist and um, a champion of free speech, uh, the working class and, uh, and human rights. So it made a lot of sense for us to be involved in the festival. Um, it was a good fit for us. Uh, and um, we were great believers that um, the visual arts can uh, create social change. Yeah, it's uh, one of the things that uh, uh, I spoke to some people from the uh, film festival and uh, one of the uh, great slogans is that, of course, uh, a film and obviously arts puts the human in uh, the human rights uh, element of the festival. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, we uh, threw open our applications process here and encouraged people to apply for um, the Human Rights Festival slot and uh, Bryce and Paul were the, were the uh, successful applicants for that show with uh, very strong um, proposals based around their experiences. Yeah, well, um, Paul, uh, reading, talk, talk about your sculpture. It, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, it's, um, it's essentially 140 um, 
found life jackets. Well, essentially they're life jack- children's life jackets, which I source from um, eBay in China. And they, the backstory is um, in 2016 I'd seen some media reports about all the life jackets piling up on the island of Lesbos in Greece, and that sort of sparked my interest. Um, and I, I sort of had the idea I need to go and see it. And so I sort of made plans during that later part of that year to uh, travel to um, to Europe, to Athens, and then get to uh, Lesbos. And essentially um, to document this mass pile of life jackets, which um, they had been picked up from the shores because obviously the Syrians were making their way through Turkey um, and they were... You know, essentially, the people smugglers were selling them the life jackets at a hundred euros a pop. Oh my goodness! And um, and they would make the the, the journey across the the ten kilometre uh, waterway between Turkey and uh, Lesbos. And Lesbos essentially is the um, a European, the first port of Europe. Um, and the process was they would get to Lesbos. Um, head down to the ports, get on the boats to Athens and start the journey, usually to Germany, up through um, the um, through Europe. Um, so, yeah, essentially I went to document and it was such a overwhelming experience seeing essentially the MCG full of, uh, you know, disposed of life jackets. And um, so I... Uh, spent spent a number of hours there absorbing and I took a few with me and uh, what I found was that the equality was such an appalling um, yeah the the jackets were just appalling they wouldn't they wouldn't pass any sort of you know safety standards here um, so over the course of the next year I started showing a few photographs because I wanted to get it out there and um, but it sort of progressed to the fact that I decided I need to go try and source these jackets myself and it was easy. I just went to eBay and literally found them. How in much China. do they cost? Uh, I buy them for six dollars. Oh correct. Yeah. Um uh, so uh, you're a sculptor? Um or is this what's come come the, out of it? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm I had a photographic background but I've moved into um, you know, sculptural works just because that's the best way I can see myself saying what I have to say. So you know. so what effect did it have on you as a person who didn't normally do sculpture to create a sculpture of this sort? Well, I think in the back I've always wanted to, to make a three-dimensional objects and, um, yeah, and I think it's been a real good, um, yeah, it's... It's, it's, it's to, to process. Yeah, it's, yeah. And and sort of absorb and, and playing with these objects and this and when and the objects is the you know they're mass produced um, they're multiples and you know there is a history in visual arts about using multiples um, so yeah I was uh, totally overwhelmed by it all I suppose still yeah and um, and I you know I've used the the circle. You know, which references the chandeliers and the mosques in Istanbul. You know, which I after like the Athens, I went to Istanbul just to absorb the. You know, the, uh, no, the show's already open. So, uh, have you had response? Um, not, not as such, mm. at this stage. Yeah. You know, um, usually things take a while to process, and then you'll get some response. And because it's a pretty um, terrific idea to to. to uh, 
obviously some of those uh, um, life jackets didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Effectively. Let's let's go to uh, Bryce. Yours is a photographic uh, exhibition. Tell us about that. Um, my photography exhibition at the Coonahan Gallery focuses on the conflict in Ukraine's east, and there are a mix of digital and film images as well as video work, which is a, a documentary and an audio piece that I recorded. And it's taken something like four years to get all that together? I've been to Ukraine a number of times over the last four years, starting in 2015, so a four-year period, but the the majority of the work I shot in the last few years, yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting because you didn't go there purely to, uh, say, as a journalist, you went there to create factual reports using mainstream media, etc., etc. You've decided that it, art is the best way to actually uh, communicate some of the ideas that you've collected. Sure. Communicating the ideas is important, but the the main reason I went there was because I recognised there was no coverage about the conflict in Ukraine in any uh, mainstream media. It was an iconic event uh, after Australian citizens were killed on flight MH17, but following that, the media reception and news coverage kind of slowed down. So... Uh, my large goal in all of this was I knew that if I did the work and I could exhibit it, it was a way that I could actually um, share the fact that the conflict is still ongoing. So the being able to exhibit my work is a great medium for doing that, but I knew that uh, if I really wanted to raise awareness about the fact the conflict was still ongoing, I wouldn't just be able to do it through the internet. Mm. So tell me, uh, what what's the process? Because there's uh, how many photos or, you know, tell me about that. Uh, it, well, it's a complicated exhibition. Sure. Um, the production of it, there are uh, six or five large digital photographs as well as six um, black and white film photographs. And then I have a large print from a medium format camera negative and then uh, the video pieces. And I... I selected works that I thought had very strong stories or the photographs were personally important to me because I knew the subjects or um, I felt like in terms of uh, explaining the conflict and being able to accurately summarise as much as possible that the works that I chose and combined really uh, represent kind of every facet of living in the conflict zone. I, I'm quite fascinated with the book that you brought with you to the studio, which is uh, The Pursuit of Power. So quite clearly uh, it's led you, uh, investigating this, uh, has uh, put you put it into a context of uh, uh, human struggle. I have learned a lot as a result of exposing myself to the situation in Ukraine, but more than anything it has made me appreciate uh, Europe more and my education and learning and knowledge more. Mm. So, uh, uh, going over there m- many times uh, and uh, synthesising it into something that's... Uh, I mean, it sounds like a relatively complicated uh, exhibition, but in actual fact, it's you've synthesised a large amount of experience. Uh, how did you do that? What Tell us about the process. Uh, from going there or just working to produce the exhibition? No, no, the, the mind space. Uh, I don't really know because the as a result of going there and then also meeting people who are no longer just subjects but have also become my friends and 
uh, like a, a second family, essentially. It's creating the exhibition, but also as a result of having been there, I've done so because I feel that if I don't do an effective job, I'm letting down the people that have um, opened their lives to me and shared their experiences with me or I've shared experiences with them. So it's been a very humbling opportunity to produce the exhibition and um, meeting many Ukrainian people has been been incredibly fulfilling for me but I also recognize that I'm kind of only one person and I'm just doing what I can and interpreting my perspective how I can. It's pretty powerful what you just said about um, uh, people not being strangers becoming real people that that's part of what you're doing with this exhibition bringing real people to Australia. Well to, to, to Coonahan Gallery, to yeah. Brunswick, to Sydney Road, to people here? Yes, uh, I feel, I, I said to the Mayor of Brunswick that uh, I'm proud to live in Brunswick and I was very proud to be able to have my exhibition there and to be able to have um, the Ukrainian ambassador there and Ukrainian people um, or Ukrainian locals in Australia and the people, the subjects in my work, as I was saying, they're no longer just subjects because I've known them for years and I've, I've seen my friends get hurt or um, their personal relationships fall apart or their um, emotional instability and job instability. So I've been able to see the conflict as more than just a war. I've seen firsthand the, the civil and social effects. Why did you choose Ukraine, just as a matter of interest? Uh, I think primarily just because there was no media coverage. I knew that um, if I was thinking where is the coverage on the conflict, it was probably highly likely that there are other Australians thinking the same thing, and I knew that if I wanted to change that, I just needed to go and do it. So, uh, uh, Victor, how long is this... Uh, is it going for the extent of uh, the uh, festival itself, its 17th? Yeah, it is, and it actually goes beyond a little bit beyond that, Annie. We go, we run the shows until the uh, Sunday the 27th of May, uh, and we've actually got a, a whole number of public programs that are running in conjunction with the exhibition as well. So, um, actually, if um, you know, listeners are interested, Bryce and Paul will both be at the gallery uh, this afternoon um, from 2.30pm uh, until 4 uh, talking about their work in situ. So you can actually, uh, you know, you can actually see the work, um, <clears throat> which is often very hard, I know, for radio to, to describe. Uh, no, 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 but it's, it's, the, it's really significant, this uh, use of art to actually express uh, very important human concepts which can't get across purely by mere statements put together in reports. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you enter the gallery, Paul's work has an immediate impact on you. Um, it's it's very hard to ignore when you walk in. It sits in your face. And um, uh, and uh, as, as Paul was kind of alluding to as well, this idea of kind of mass production um, and that, that sort of taps into, you know, human misery... Um, <clears throat> becomes very apparent and uh, Bryce's work uh, has been I think a really great uh, rallying kind of call or definitely the the people who've been into the exhibition and I know were there on opening night it was um, very powerful for Ukrainian people to actually have some form of recognition locally of uh, the crisis that's that's happening there and um, uh, uh, there were people who flew down from Sydney <coughs> excuse me uh, to see the exhibition so um, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's very affecting, and um, uh, and I think it does show the power that visual arts can can play in 
um, uh, bringing people together and actually uh, creating a focus. Uh, tell us about the panel discussion that's coming up on uh, Wednesday. Um, so on Wednesday the 9th, um, uh, we've got some uh, artists coming in. We've It was sort of prompted a little bit by um, uh, Bryce's... Um, uh, the concept around Bryce's show about reportage um, and so it's called Broadcast Interrupted and it's the reportage of crisis and the role of arts practice and we've invited three artists along who've directly been affected by displacement and conflict and they are Marla Karimian who is uh, an Iranian artist Miriam Salome who's a Syrian artist and Shah Sawari who's an Afghani artist uh, and they'll be uh, sp- uh, speaking to and um uh, speaking to First Nations facilitator Kat Clark, and she'll be leading a discussion around um, news reportage and and the the lack thereof, and the role that arts practice can actually play in addressing that. And how sometimes com- different conflict uh, conflicts are more glamorous apparently than others. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that works. works. <laughs> it's crazy. All right, yeah. so that's at six thirty. Uh, that's 6.30 to 8pm on Wednesday the 9th, uh, so it sounds like Wednesday the 9th is a busy day. Um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. You've got to, in the morning at 10, go to uh, outside Victoria Trades Hall and fight for our rights and then go to Coonahan in the, in the evening Absolutely. and learn about why. Yeah, yeah. Um, we do have one other event too I can touch on, uh, which is uh, a spoken word event, which is on, uh, on next Saturday, the 12th of May. Um, from 2.30 to 4 as well, which is uh, presented in partnership with uh, the uh, the organisation Melbourne Artists for Asylum Seekers and Writing Through Fences. So um, that'll be happening at the gallery too. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thank you Thanks, very Annie. much, Annie. Thank you. For the November 2018 state elections, Victorian socialists and left-wingers are coming together to get a socialist elected to the upper house for the northern metropolitan region. Leading the ticket is long-time Yarra councillor Stephen Jolly, followed by Moreland councillor Sue Bolton from the Socialist Alliance and Colleen Bolger from the Socialist Attorney. Victorian socialists will officially be launching our campaign on Saturday the 12th of May from 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel at 114 Smith Street in Collingwood. Come along to find out more about our campaign and how you can get involved. It will be an opportunity to hear from the candidates and local community residents on the importance of getting a socialist into parliament and presenting a political alternative from the major capitalist parties. A 3CR supporter. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've got Kevin live on the line. G'day, Kev. Good, good morning, Annie. How are you? Um, look, I'm... I'm going to set the record straight this morning and bring a bit of balance into this because that's Sally McManus. Oh, um, my God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I look, just a couple of headlines recently in the Financial Review just to show how mistaken you were this morning. McManus' battle cry ignores the reality. And, a, and an editorial headline, a throwback to the union's racist, protectionist past. <laughs> And another one, ACTU's new bargaining bid risks industrial chaos. Now, this is the sort of thing you'll be promoting this morning, Annie. I'm sorry, but <laughs> that's how it is. Um, We're on the right I'll put side it of down history. To naivety. <laughs> but thankfully, the week that was this morning clears the whole thing up. So it's very good to know. <laughs> Here we go. A weak solidarity brickie team lister when we all enjoyed watching, listening and reading Tuesday's media, page after page up front in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, for instance, 
of May Day news of the history, heroes of the great working class struggles, where to go to celebrate, photos of brave, glorious union leaders and workers, little kids in their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers' work clothes, proudly displaying union and May Day badges, celebrating their heroic actions against greed and exploitation. Arguments we know are sadly misplaced because we at the week that was know unions are evil, 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 so evil the government was forced to call on Her Most Gracious, Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into the evil as its first item of business. Yet the evil goes on. Just last week, unions attacked a small business which owed a worker the equivalent of 93 weeks' pay, an obvious inadvertent oversight over several years. No caring employer would deliberately rip off a worker. And sure, on the law of averages, if there are 100 inadvertent oversights, we'd expect it to be roughly 50-50, and that there has never been even one inadvertent oversight which overpaid a worker just shows we can't trust the law of averages. Yet the ACTU Secretary Sally McManus, let us point out here, caring employers are so socially aware and concerned, they recognise there is no difference between caring employers and lazy, avaricious workers. And there would be no conflict if only evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers realised that, shared the same social responsibility. Yet this Sally McManus carries on as if caring employers and their workers have different interests. Introducing, as poor caring employers and the government are forced to spit, the politics of envy, of class warfare, class struggle, something we know is a relic of the past. Why, former socialist big supremo nuclear hawk himself made that clear years ago, a working class hero loved by caring employers. That's the sort of working class hero we want, the sort of society we need. Yet, Sally McManus has called for industrial relations to be made more favourable to workers, claiming it is loaded toward employers when employers constantly tell us we need to remove the bias to evil unions by returning industrial relations to the sensible centre, showing caring employers are sensible. And that hero of reform, Chris Lyagain of Pat Prick Stevedores, was forced to bemoan that since he did his bit for productivity on the wharves, thanks to a few balaclavas and dogs and trained killers, governments have been afraid to tackle industrial relations, thus handing all that power we know evil unions and workers enjoy. Even worse, they give them our hard-earned public money, as the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, Evan Mulhell on the land, was forced to scream outrageous as the Melbourne City Council voted $300,000 toward the renovation of Trades Hall, that monument to class warfare. Public funds are meant for really important and meaningful projects like like the tennis centre where I spend many a pleasant summer afternoon with friends for, for footy grounds and related facilities for the impoverished AFL, upgrading corporate hospitality areas, for instance, not for divisive sectional interests like evil workers and disruptive unions. So shame on the media for its shameless mass coverage, mass celebration of so divisive a day. 
We never see them celebrating caring employers, caring business class day, do we? Or train killer best we forget day. And shame, shame, shame for putting those little children in their great-grandparents' work clothes and May Day and Union medals and badges. That's the sort of brainwashing of dear little children practiced by evil commies and evil Islamic fundamentalists. And speaking of the government barely being able to wait to establish that Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into Evil Unions, its latest couldn't wait no procrastination commission, that AMP on the customer's corporate lawyer Brian Salter away their money, given the flick along with the chairwoman, said he did no wrong. I just changed a few things. And the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, came under attack for being a, being a law-abiding citizen after it simply lost these tapes containing about 20 million account details of the customers it so cherishes. So minor a problem, it didn't think it worth informing the cherished customers until it was sprung by a media leak. Uh, yes, why didn't you alert the customers? Uh, because under the law, we didn't have to. See? Law-abiding, good corporate citizen. Arising out of all this, particularly the Her Most Gracious Majesty's con mission, big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull and the team was so desperate to establish, Monday, Malcolm called for the great corporates to, quote, put your customers ahead of profits. Well, that should work a treat. Problem solved. On that lot, serious neighbourhood spat in Turak, track where a respectable citizen is upset by an ugly structure that has turned up over the back fence, a private gym for one of those tele-food show people, the George one who, going to our starting point, inadvertently didn't pay his workers. And we have to feel for this poor woman because no one in track deserves to see ugly. Well, extra ugly. After all, I walk down the street and there's a chance they'll see some of the filthy rich barons of the great corporate sector and surely that's enough ugly for anyone. Extra ugly is for the uncultured riffraff, the western suburbs or maybe the outer southeast where the corporate barons can construct much of the ugly in their never-ending quest to create jobs and growth jobs and growth. Malcolm would be so proud of them and he would know they would put their customers ahead of profits. A man for whom that creed has driven his life, this week US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trump or the poor came clean or perhaps came dirty about hush payments to a woman called Stormy after denying he knew anything about it. He didn't even know the woman called Stormy and obviously he wouldn't know anything about a huge payment in the middle of the election campaign to shut up someone accusing him of a sexual encounter. Okay, his hush money lawyer Michael Cohen paid up, but Donald knew nothing. And then one of his other lawyers said, yeah, Donald had reimbursed the hush money lawyer. And Donald now recalls he did reimburse the hush money lawyer. But when he said no, he didn't know what he knew. He didn't know he knew. Sort of a sexual tryst version of Donald Rumsfeld, the Arabs, things you know, you don't know, you know, you don't know rubbish. And maybe when Donald said no, he probably meant K-N-O-W. He did know what he knew, because the US of Big Supremo always tells the truth. And we're left to ponder how much longer the new lawyer who spilled the beans will hang in as they, as they trample the poor lawyer. And we have to say the hush bit of the Cohen hush money 
worked a treat. Sort of, this is our dirty joke of the morning, Cummin and Cohen. Although, let's make it clear in case anyone thinks for one moment the alleged sexual encounter actually took place. No, it did not. No. Donald himself said, well, probably tweeted it, it did not take place. I never had sex with that woman. And who do we believe? A porn star, as the media loves to call Stormy, or the President of the United States? Come on, who do we believe? Clue, don't forget, Donald never tells a lie. Notice another of the myriad of lawyers Donald apparently needs. New one appointed this week called Flood, and I thought, how appropriate, given the flood of personnel washing in and out of the White House. Now, really, really important story in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. How to dress like a princess. And I thought... There's three answers to that one. One, be filthy rich. Two, be filthy rich. And three, be filthy rich. As the excitement builds, they also ran a truly delightful story, The People's Wedding. Three pages, including some beautiful pictures of the loving couple, a must-read. And again, I thought, spot on. It is The People's Wedding, because the people will be paying for it. Although they don't see too, won't see too much of the obscenely expensive food and grog. Indeed, none. Not a crumb, not a drop. All in a week, when the groom slipped down one more place in the top of the inbred pile stakes, as his sister-in-law, a, a sort of professional incubator, produced yet another little mouth for the British taxpayer to feed. With all the excited speculation on what he'll wear, we all can't wait to see whether he'll proudly wear his fun, fun, fun swastika. It would be a worthy tribute to his great-great-uncle Edward and presumably to a few other members of the inbred lot. Finally, there's been this carry-on about whether the filthy rich could live on $40 a day, the cornucopia on which doll budgers whoop it up week after week. And the answer is a clear... Affirmative. The filthy rich assure us they can live on $40 a day. It's just that we don't have to. <laughs> and they point out wisely, they have the dignity of work, the dignity of a job. Don't sit around budging all day. And what do you do? We asked that woman in track, confronted with the horror, the ugly of George's backyard gym. I spend the day in worthwhile employment counting the value of my shares, then recounting the value of my shares, and attending fine food champagne functions with my friends designed to raise funds for our charities. We love our charities. It helps take my mind off that ugly, ugly I am forced to overlook, as in look over, not as in ignore. And Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, said a socialist government would conduct a root and branch review of welfare payments. Uh, so you'll increase them, little Billy. We'll review them, root and branch. For those who have no choice about trying to survive on $40 a day, the past tense of root sounds appropriate. Good morning. Efficiency in progress is ours once more Now that we have the neutron bomb It's nice and quick and clean and good things done Away with the sex and But no less value to property No sex 
for the November 2018 state elections. Victorian socialists and left-wingers are coming together to get a socialist elected to the upper house for the northern metropolitan region. Leading the ticket is long-time Yarra councillor Stephen Jolly, followed by Moreland councillor Sue Bolton from the Socialist Alliance and Colleen Bolger from the Socialist Attorney. Victorian socialists will officially be launching our campaign on Saturday the 12th of May from 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel at 114 Smith Street in Collingwood. Come along to find out more about our campaign and how you can get involved. It will be an opportunity to hear from the candidates and local community residents on the importance of getting a socialist into Parliament and presenting a political alternative from the major capitalist parties. A 3CR supporter. Mayday March this Sunday at 1pm from Victorian Trades Hall, Corner Ligon and Victoria Streets. Defend workers' rights and demand the right to strike. Bring your family and friends and show your support for decent pay and working conditions and for a society that meets the needs of the people. Mayday March and Family Day, including stalls and activities. This Sunday, 1pm, Victorian Trades Hall in Carlton. A 3CR supporter. The seriously funny Rod Quantock will be at Steps Gallery in Carlton to open a fundraising art show at 3pm on Saturday, May 19th. Works by Arthur Boyd, Lunig, First Dog on the Moon and many, many more will be on sale. There'll be political cartoons from the present and posters from the past, as well as artworks of beauty, joy and wit. All proceeds will support ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, and winner of last year's Nobel Peace Prize and ICANN's parent organisation, MAPWA. Health professionals promoting peace. All welcome. ICANN and MAPWA are 3CR supporters. Billabong Beach starting on the 8th of May at 11am till 12pm, 8.55am, 3CR Community Radio. Tune in to Billabong Beach Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, of course that was Kill the Poor and that was Dead Kennedys and that was in honour of Sally McManus and her earlier uh, admission that as a young thing they were one of the uh, uh, groups that she uh, keyed into. Uh, We're going to finish off today with a uh, part of a speech that was given by uh, Bill Mitchell who uh, uh, came to the... uh, International Bookshop in February. He's an economist uh, from the Newcastle uh, University uh, and uh, he is talking about a book, his latest book uh, and uh, we probably won't get a chance to listen to both parts of this so I'll uh, uh, play the other part uh, later on, I think. Um, or m- maybe I'll play the second part because it, it ends up so beautifully that uh, I can't help but uh, want to finish the, eve- uh, the morning with it. 
So uh, it's a, it, what he was talking about was uh, the um, basic issue of how uh, the left side of politics has fallen victim to the uh, whole concept of neoliberalism and it's about time that uh, uh, people started to shake it off and uh, re- regain uh, the power effectively because it's actually doing us all in. Uh, he uh, talks about uh, where it came from. That's uh, We're now up to the part of the speech where he's talking about where it happened and why it happened and... Uh, uh, and I thought you might be interested in finding out a bit of history about where we got to uh, at this stage of the economic race. It hasn't just happened, Hawke and Keating, it didn't just happen with Hawke and Keating. It goes back to the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, Margaret Thatcher was not the first monetarist government. The first monetarist government was the British La- second Wilson government of the British Labor Party. The British Labor Party under, under Harold Wilson and then James Callaghan and his Chancellor or Treasurer in our terms was Dennis Healy. They had become obsessed with monetarism, of Milton Friedman's monetarism. And they'd become obsessed with that in before, uh, even when Heath was still the Prime Minister in the early 70s. And there was a big split in the British Labor Party, a philosophical split between the the Benites and Dennis Healy's group, who were becoming monetarist. And that came to a head in... Well, the monetarist infestation occurred in the academy in the late 60s. And then it started to filter out into central bankers conservative central bankers, who saw it as a chance to empower them their, themselves because they, that's monetary policy central banks are responsible for. So anything that said that monetary policy was, uh, was the big deal and fiscal policy was uh, an inferior policy intervention, well, the central bankers loved that. But they were also... Central bankers are deeply conservative and obsessed with inflation. And... At the same time, this was when the profit squeeze debate was going on. And I, how many people know about the Powell Manifesto, 1971? Anyone know? Well, people who read my blog probably know, but, but do, any, do people not know? This was a huge intervention. Lewis Powell was a, was a lawyer, and he was hired by, he, he was hired by uh, American capital and emerging Wall Street interests to create a strategic document that would allow them to reverse the squeeze on profits and redistribute national income back to, back to capital, away from workers. And he, doc- he outlined that they had to take over the media, that, they had to, that the capital had to infiltrate universities and secondary schools, that they had to take over the American Supreme Court it was because the Supreme Court's sort of the ultimate dep- arbiter of policy and that they had to create uh, media and propaganda machines. Is that now on Yeah, you can get yeah, it. you can get it online. And the propaganda machines were the think tanks. Mm-hmm. So all these think tanks that are out there now, these all, these all formed in the early 70s as a response to, to Lewis Powell's manifesto. As short, about a month after he published it, President Nixon appointed him to the Supreme Court mm-hmm. 
and he became the most conservative Supreme Court uh, judge in American history. Total bastard. And uh, in terms of liberty. This was a very influential document because you can see the way the think tanks formed and then just pumped out constant propaganda in the 70s. In Australia, we, that's when the Centre of Independent Studies formed. It's when the IPA formed. It's when the HR Nichols Society formed. And, the, and even though these weren't as well resourced as they were in the US, if, you, if you've lived through that time, you'll remember that the, the, the nonsense that these organisations, the CIS and IPA and the HR Nichols Society, were pumping out continually about we need to cut real wages, we need to... Uh, this was when we started to get the narrative that the unemployment, mass unemployment, was not a result of systemic failure to create enough jobs, at which individuals were relatively powerless to... to defend themselves against, if there's less inadequate spending in the economy, we all knew what would happen. There'd be no, not enough jobs and then the, the job, jobless queue would be rationed to the most disadvantaged workers. Mm. The ethnics, disabled, young people, unskilled, in, you know, in various ways. But in the mid-70s, with all these think tanks pumping out all this stuff, we started to get the narrative that... Unemployment was an individual problem. It wasn't a system problem, it was an individual problem, that individuals were lazy. And who do you think was the first person in Australia to coin the term job bludger? Clyde Cameron. Good. Clyde Cameron, 1974, introduced the term job bludger when he was Minister for Labor under the Whitlam government. Clyde Cameron... This was the beginning of our left parties abandoning their agenda. And he was on the left of Labor too. Well, he said he was. Yeah. British Labor, the famous speech by James Callaghan, who took over after uh, Harold Wilson sort of lost the plot and James Callaghan became Prime Minister of Britain. And in, in the uh, uh, September 1976 Labor Party conference in Blackpool, he declared that the era of Keynesianism is over, that the state is no longer capable of using its spending to maintain full employment, and that we had the state had to, in the face of global capital, had to make sure that it created a policy environment that was favourable to global investment. And that inflation first had to become the priority of the national government of Britain. And that's a massive statement for a, a Labor Prime Minister to make, that the whole era of full employment and state intervention and welfare state and regulation and nationalised industries and all the rest of it that went with the post-war consensus that created such strong growth and in per capita and absolute terms and uh, reduced inequity and uh, uh, and lifted people, the workers, up from 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 the poverty of the depression. That was wrong. That's what he said. And this was because they had become monetarists. In 1983, Francois Mitterrand was elected as a socialist president of uh, France, and uh, he was elected on an absolute landslide. And the landslide was because. Uh, 
the, the previous government uh, had adopted what was called the Barr Plan. Raymond Barr was the finance minister at the time, and, that, and he was uh, an austerity merchant. He cut wages and cut government spending, and by the end of the 70s in France, unemployment was skyrocketing, uh, wages were stagnating or being cut, and workers were generally over it. And Francois Mitterrand came in on, on the groundswell of that discontent as a, with, with a, a huge plan to uh, empower the state again, the French state, to create full employment again and, and allow workers' wages to grow in line with productivity. Well, by 1983, he brought in the so-called famous turn, turn to austerity. Under, under the Minister for Finance then was Jacques Delors. And Jacques Delors, of course, became the, the European Commission President soon after that, and, and it was the Delors report that, out, that, that uh, created the architecture for Maastricht. Oh, the European Union? No, the European, the Economic and Monetary Union, the Eurozone. Oh. European Union was around already. Oh, yeah. For the Euro. Yeah. The common, common currency. And so Mitterrand, a socialist, inflicted austerity on his country just in the same way that British Labor had adopted that as the mindset. And that, that, that emerged in, in Jacques Delors' document, in his report in 1989. And when you say austerity, you're talking about the general population, not the rich people. I'm talking about cutting workers' wages, attacking trade unions, cutting welfare pensions, privatising industries, deregulating labour and financial markets, the whole box and neoliberal dice. And when I talk to people over, you know, since I've been a, uh, talking as a professor, mm -hmm. I'm continually getting confronted from the left with your ideas can't work because they're the models that people throw back at us. You know, oh, British Labor in 1976, that's when the British Labor went to the IMF and said we've run out of money. This is a, this is a currency issuing government that, that issues its own currency. Dennis Healy got the IMF involved and, and, and he knew damn well that they didn't need to borrow from the IMF. They, they issue their own currency. But he used it as a way, and I was just about to say wedging Tony Benn because it, that, was, that would have been pretty bad, wouldn't it? Because Tony Benn was Anthony Wedgwood Benn, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but he used it as a way of, of, of uh, divide and conquer within the Labor Party, the machine, to to assert the authority of his monetarist push. Was that because of his own sense of aggrandisement or was there something there's all, to this? There's all sorts of, there's all sorts of mm -hmm. theories mm -hmm. about why he did it because a lot of people say he was an otherwise decent bloke. But, but the thing is that they'd become zealots, monetarist zealots, and that, and that was blinding their... They, they, they had bought the line that the nation-state had to satisfy the financial markets. They'd bought that line hook, line and sinker. And where did they get the line yeah, from? It was oh. the public service. Where was it from? Someone must have bought well, it. Well, <coughs> did they go to Chicago? I'm to, you know, go back to the power manifesto, the think tanks. 
by the, the first group, it started in the academy, the first group that really became monetarist zealots outside the academy were the central bankers. So the first monetarist experiment actually was the, the uh, credit and competition policy in 1971 in Britain under the Bank of England introduced a monetary targeting system, which was basic monetarism, that you had to control the growth of the money supply or you'd get inflation. And the Bank of England under Edward Heath's government brought in the so-called triple C policy. Now, they abandoned it a year later because the central bank couldn't control the money supply and never is able to. But that didn't stop, you know, that didn't stop the monetarist idea continuing. Is it a sense of a false sense of scientificness? Well, I don't know if it's a word. Well, you know, I don't want to insult people who have religious beliefs, but it's a, <laughs> it's a religion. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown, and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we've come to the end of the show. We heard from Sally McManus. We uh, heard from artists who have got shows on at the uh, Coonahan Gallery. Uh, and uh, that's part of the uh, uh, Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, which runs to the 17th of May. Uh, lots of films going on at ACME, but also all around the place. There's uh, uh, cultural events that are uh, putting their human in human rights. And uh, the uh, after that, we heard from Kevin, and then we heard from uh, the the marvellous... Uh, Bill Mitchell from uh, Newcastle University, who uh, advocates for full employment. He he thinks it's a, a complete ruse to think that a, a, a countries can't actually employ people to do all the things that actually need to be done. Uh, and it's a con job, basically. Uh, I love the last line. Um, I don't want to... Uh, uh, it's a religion. It's a religion. Neoliberalism is a religion. Anyway, uh, don't forget that uh, 3CR's Radiothon's coming. That's 4th to the 17th of June. Yes, it seems like uh, early notice, but some of the programs are already doing uh, fundraisers. Uh, next Wednesday night, uh, the uh, spoken word uh, people are having a... Uh, a uh, uh, speak out <laughs> in uh, Moore Street, uh, so uh, you keep a alert to uh, the various uh, events that people are um, are doing to raise money for the continuation of the station. It's uh, this year. It's all about uh, what is it? Uh, fight for your m- fight for the mic, fight for your mic. And uh, that, of course, is what we all have to do in order to uh, be able to uh, get things done. We'll hear from the spoken word people before I go. During the 3CR Radiothon for 2018, Spoken Word presents an evening of live poetry featuring the outstanding talents of Jennifer Compton, Andy Jackson, Tariro Mavondo and Kylie Supsky plus an open mic recorded for broadcast on 3CR, Tuesday 15th of May from 7pm at Grub Food Van, 87 Moore Street, Fitzroy. And all proceeds go to 3CR Community Radio. Help keep independent, progressive voices on the air.
I wasn't entirely correct about the uh, date, was I? So it was put just as well that I uh, let you know from the horse's mouth. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Uh, I thought I'd play a cheeky song to go out. Uh, it's called Don't Patronise Me by Alison Ferrier. The final embers of the fire Are burning out tonight The warm glow in the room is turning cold We were together on the same page Now our story's near the end For me a sadder tale has not been Patronize me That's not the way It may surprise you to know I was not born yesterday I thought that you were so contented With the path you walk upon And there was no way You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.